Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. I receive a daily email from a, an organization called Seedbed, and it is a discipleship organization in which uh, trying to help Christians grow deeper in their relationship with Christ. And um, I, I would encourage you to explore that. It's, it's, a, it's a two, three, five-minute devotional each day. A week or so ago, one of the devotionals that came from J.D. Walt, who is the, uh, the organizer of this, of this uh, ministry, in, in the midst of that devotional, he made this statement. He said, I'm, I'm working on an idea. He said, I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. I'm still trying to figure it out. But the idea is this. God is only as real to you as your worship is real to God. God is only as real to you as your worship is real to God. Now, I have to admit, I'm still pondering that. I'm still working through that, the idea of that. But I think one of the things that, that he means by that and one of the outcomes of that kind of idea is that it transforms our view of worship because we tend to think that worship is, uh, my worship is about what is happening to me and it's about me. But the reality is my worship is really about God. My worship is about how God, how I am, how I am enamored with God and how I am thinking about God. And I think one of the things that we get confused when we think about worship, even in the language that we use, is that we tend to think that worship is gathering together, either in person or like we are now through streaming or other ways, that this is worship. But when you read the Psalms, and when you read all of the Scriptures for that matter, there is a different perspective about worship. The beginning of Psalm 146 talks about this. The, the writer says, praise the Lord. Let all that I am praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God with my dying breath. What the psalmist is saying is that every moment of life should be worship. Everywhere I go, everything I do, every thought I have, all of it should be worship. All of it should be about God. And I think that, that changes so much of our thinking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. No longer can we compartmentalize our lives and say, well, I come to worship, I think about God, and then I leave there and I think about myself. And God ends up on the back burner. It's not that I, that I totally forget God. It's not that God isn't important to me, but other things seem to be more important. But if we're going to offer biblical praise to God, then that means it's going to involve not just moments like these, but every moment of every day. It is a matter, it's, a, it's a way of being. This is biblical praise. And of course, to, often when we, need to, when we want to understand something, I find it helps me to not only think about what it is, but also think about what it's not. And the psalmist does that, because in the next verses, the psalmist says, so if you're going to praise God as a way of being, then don't put your trust in anything temporal. Verses 3 and 4 say, don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help for you there. 
When they breathe their last, they return to the earth, and all their plans die with them. Some of the translations say, don't put your trust in princes. And the, the term that's used there is not just royalty, but it's people who have influence. It's people who, who the world, who culture, and, and everyone looks at and says, that's an important person. And the subtle temptation for every one of us is, is to allow people to be more of an influence on our thinking and our actions and our way of being than God is. That happens when we think of worship as a moment instead of a life. And the psalmist is saying you can't do that and still offer genuine praise to God. There's so much, it's such a subtle temptation for us that to allow things that are temporal and people that are temporal to, to be where we place our trust, where we, where we put our weight, that we lean on for security and for hope. I'm probably going to get myself in trouble for this, but it wouldn't be the first time. But, um, you know, we just finished the two national conventions of the major political parties of our country. And we were about two months away from this big election. And I can't help but think when I read, don't put your trust in princes, it help, makes me think that sometimes the subtle temptation is to think that a political person, a political party, a political ideology will be what, will, what the world needs and what the world will save the world. And it's not that those things aren't important, because they are important. It matters. But ultimately, what will change the world is God alone. And sometimes the subtle temptation we fall in is to think, if I just put my weight behind a person or an ideology or a party, then that will change the world. And as important as those things might be, ultimately, if they replace God, they are false gods. And it's not just people. It's anything temporal. You know, we're continually tempted to think that things that are temporal can satisfy us. Often, it's they're, they're gifts from God. They're good things, not bad things. You look at the history of God's people, one of their greatest struggles was to begin to, was to receive God's gifts and then to worship God's gifts instead of worshiping God. And the psalmist says, if you're going to live a life of praise where it incorporates, envelops all of your being, then you have to be aware of that subtle temptation. Because, we, because the joy of life, the, the deep joy that all of us are yearning for, that every person in the world is hoping for and striving for, the joy that, that we think can be found in things temporal, that joy can only be found in God. When you come to verse 5, you see once again the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. Because the writer says in verse 5, Joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying you will experience joy. You will find what you're seeking for when you admit and acknowledge that you're needy. You know, we live in a world where acknowledging that we're needy is a very risky thing to do because it makes us look weak. 
And we don't like to admit that we're needy. We don't want to, we don't want to appear weak and vulnerable to people. And so we put up a good front. We say we don't want to be needy. But the gospel says it's the people who are needy and recognize that God is the only one who can meet that need, find the joy of God in their lives. And when we praise God, we're saying, God, thank you that I can come to you in honesty and openness, and you don't run away from me, and you don't shove me aside, but you help me. This is who God is. The story of the Scriptures is about God helping needy people. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is just beginning His ministry. And uh, he calls Levi, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples. And Levi says, I'd love to be one of your disciples. And, and you know what, Jesus? I'm gonna, I'd love to throw a party for you with all of my closest friends. Would you come if I did that? And Jesus says, of course I would come. I would love that. And so the, Luke tells us that Jesus, we find Jesus at Levi's home having this big party among people who are like Levi, who is a tax collector. And, and he says... And the the religious leaders see this, and they are appalled. And they say to Jesus, do you realize what you're doing here? If you want to be considered a spiritual leader, much less the Messiah, you cannot hang out with people like this, tax collectors and sinners. People whose lifestyle doesn't match up with what the religious leaders believe should be done. People who are, who are struggling with all kinds of problems. And what is it Jesus says to them? He says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. And you go through the script, you, when you walk your way through the Gospels and on into the end of the, of the Scriptures, you will find that people who admit their need to God find joy in God. And people who are unwilling to admit their need to God miss Him. And this isn't just about salvation. The psalmist is writing to people who are already followers of God. This is all of life. This is every day, every moment of life to say, God, I need you every single moment. That's why I think the church, the best, one of the best metaphors for the church is a hospital. You come to a hospital because you have a need. You're sick, you're injured, you're hurt. Something has happened and you need help. And you may be embarrassed about how this happened and you often don't want, might not want to reveal that to the people treating you. But honestly, most of the time, it doesn't matter to them. They're just there to help you and they're glad you came. And if that's true of a hospital, how much more is it true of our loving Heavenly Father who says, come. Unfortunately, the church has a history of creating an image and sending the message that the the better metaphor for the church is a country club. That people in the church have it all together. People in the church have figured it all out. And we come with our masks and pretend that everything is perfect when it's not. And then we wonder, why are we not experiencing the great joy of God in our lives? Psalmist says, if you want to know joy, 
then a part of praising God is coming to God and saying, thank you so much that I can come to you in openness and honesty with all of my failures, all of my struggles, and you don't reject me. You are faithful to me, and you heal me. That's the, that's the message of the gospel. And it's a reason we praise him. And we know that's going to be God's response because the psalmist says in the rest of the verses, let me tell you a little bit about who this God is that you're coming to with your needs. First of all, I want to remind you, this is a God who is a creator. And he is the faithful creator. The God who created all things is the one you're coming to. And, and I'm convinced that the, that the Old Testament, the primary point of telling us about God the Creator is not so much to prove that God created as opposed to some other theory, but is to show us how God created and why God created. Compared to all the nations around Israel whose stories of creation are related to accidents and vengeance and wars, the biblical story of creation is God who loves, who wants relationship, who loves beauty, who loves flourishing. He says, that's what I'm going to make, and that's why I'm doing this. This is the God to whom we come as needy people. And he is always faithful. Even after creation and his, and his beloved creatures rejected him, he sought them, and he loved them, and he was faithful to them. And all throughout the history from that moment to today and on through history, this is who God is, and we can rely on that. No wonder the psalmist says, praise the Lord. This is who we're giving our life to. We can trust him. But he goes on and says something else about this God. When you read verses 7 to 9, he says, he gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows. This is a God who cares about everyone. Now, the point of the psalmist is not God cares about these people, and he doesn't care about other people. The psalmist's point is, the people that so many in this world don't care about, God cares about them. Because God cares about all people. But sometimes you have to tell people that they are loved because they, are, they don't feel loved. They feel pushed to the margins. They feel, they feel vulnerable. They feel oppressed. And we have to, they, need to be, they need to be told that they are cared for and loved by God. Again, we find the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. Because in our world, these are not people that we look up to. These are people we tend to want to run away from. John Case said in his sermon a month or so ago, talking about people like this who are vulnerable. He said, these, maybe one of the ways of understanding it, these are people that we would never want to trade places with. That, I, I cannot get that out of my mind. And our God, who creates in beauty and faithfulness and love, 
who heals us and transforms us and wants us. It says these are people that may not feel loved in this world, but I love them. They're important to me. Every single one. Everyone. When I read this, it makes me think of Isaiah 61. And that makes me think of Luke chapter 4. Because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has just beginning his ministry. And Luke says that in the beginning of this, he says, When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read the Scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where this was written. You notice, this seems very intentional by Jesus. He's searching through the scroll, looking for this, because he's trying to help everyone there understand, this is what I'm about. And he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Jesus says, this is what my coming is about. The people who do not feel loved would know they are loved. The people who feel as though they are not important to God need to know they are important to God. And no one is left out. It's the core message that Jesus brings, that he comes to transform every mind, every heart, Every spirit, every soul, every person, because everyone is his beloved children, including the people who don't feel like they are. You know, when we think of, you notice that the writer talks about that the fact that, G, that God executes justice for these people. We tend to think of God executing justice as bringing vengeance upon people. But the reality is God's justice is about restoration. It's about reconciliation. It's about hope. It's about life. But there is a, there is, uh, there are a, there's a time, there, there is a way in which the justice as restoration and reconciliation becomes judgment. And the writer says at the end of verse 9, he says that there are that not only does he do all of this for the people who are vulnerable, but he also frustrates the plans of the wicked. And this is where you get the sense of God's judgment. He is not going to allow the plans of people who have created this atmosphere of injustice, who have put people in vulnerable positions, who have oppressed people, and have created the systems in which that kind of reality flourishes. God is not going to leave that undone. People who oppose his priorities, people who oppose his ways, are going to face the consequences of that. And here's what I think this, this section means for praising God. When we praise God, we are saying, God, I love the fact 
that this is who you are. That you care for the vulnerable people in this world who don't feel cared for. And I love the fact that you are going to frustrate the plans of people who create that vulnerability and that injustice. But it's also one more step. It is saying, God, as I praise you, what I really want you to do is to give me your heart. The reason I'm praising you is because I'm telling you, I'm so excited that this is how you view people and this is what you do. Now, make me also a person who does what you do. Give me the kind of empathy and compassion and willingness to act for people who need your grace. And Father, maybe make me open and willing to be an advocate and a voice and, and to be open and willing to also challenge the systemic nature of injustice in this world. Make me open to be willing to do that, even if it costs me, even if it's a challenge for me. Because I want your heart. And I want to act in ways that you would act. That's what my praise is about, Lord. It really comes down to the focus of our hearts, the focus of our attention. Is it on what is eternal or what is temporal? That's why the psalm ends by, by talking about God's, uh, the Lord will reign forever throughout all the generations. The ways of God are eternal. And every time we offer praise to God, whatever the setting may be, we are saying, God, give me grace to embrace the eternal nature of your kingdom and of life. I am convinced that that's our calling. And that's why, that's why praising God is not just a moment. It's a way of being. And the question for each one of us is, where does our heart lie? Where are we leaning? What does our praise of God really mean? It makes the difference not only for us, but for others for whom we bear the image of Christ in us. Father, we pray that you will, you will make us people who praise you with our voices, with our bodies, with all that we are, wherever we are, and with our minds our attitudes, and everything about us. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of living lives of praise to you that we might bear your image wherever we are. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen.